0: Welcome to Life of the School, episode 38. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how'd they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Ryan Laxon. Ryan is a science teacher at Galena High School in Galena, Missouri. In addition to Ryan's work in the classroom, Ryan was a co-founder of the Missouri Biology Teachers Association and is the communication chair for the science teachers of Missouri. Nationally, Ryan was the conference uh, chair for the 2017 National Association of Biology Teacher Professional Development Conference in St. Louis. Ryan was recognized as the 2015 Science Teacher of Missouri High School Science Teacher of the Year and the 2017 Outstanding Biology Teacher Award winner for the state of Missouri. You can follow Ryan's musings on Twitter at NoScals, N-O-S-C-A-L-S on Twitter. Welcome, Ryan. Hello. Thanks for joining me over uh over break here. We're uh in the last couple of days of twenty seventeen. Oh, thanks for having me. I see a big I think is that like a Coke uh, Christmas tree in the Coke Can Christmas tree in the background.
1: That is correct. My last <laughs> Coke memorabilia. So the entire kitchen is Coca Cola decorated.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's it's been nice we got this uh I don't know, it's weird being able to like sleep. Um <laughs> not having your schedule run by bells. <laughs> so, yeah, so I appreciate you there. And we, we did actually run, I did run into you a couple of times at the at the NABT conference there in St. Louis, as busy as you were. I kept on, uh felt like we ran into each other a few different times there.
1: Yeah, it was it was crazy busy, but got to work quite a bit and learn quite a bit as well. So, you know, always a good time. Love love spending uh, as much time as I can with my fellow colleagues
0: in nabt yeah and that was a that was a great it was a good time i I hadn't been to st louis since uh i think i was there at one time in the 90s uh uh, (laughs) passing through um uh, in there so it was was good to spend a few days as as much as it was cold uh it was a it was a good uh, it was a good time there spent a spent a couple days walking around uh going down by the arch and baseball stadium and all that and uh yeah as you said just spending times with our uh with our colleagues uh by Bio, fellow biology teachers and even the downtime conversations are still uh it were so enriching and and great so looking forward to san diego
1: absolutely absolutely it'll
0: be a little warmer there i think i got i got some interesting looks when i put my shorts on and went running out there in st louis uh <laughs> oh
1: I, I i bet i bet
0: yeah All right. Well, let's uh, let's dive into it. I like to ask you the question. I like to start with everybody, which is, how did you become a science teacher? Um, What what led you into the classroom?
1: Well, um, like many uh, science teachers, I have found um, at NABT or in 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 NABT um, education was not my first. I had actually started. School, intending to attend medical school that was that's what I knew what I was going to do you had asked my mom at the time she would have told you I was um, in fact every teacher I ever had told me I was going to be a doctor except for my AP calculus teacher and told me I would be an excellent teacher and I told her she was crazy and that I would never be able to handle being a teacher. As, as it goes you know, sometimes I a lot of times the adults in our lives know a lot more than we would like to admit and in this case she was so I was in semester seven of my undergrad um, had already been accepted into medical school was ready for that uh, final final turn and realized that I was just kind of going through the motions I really wasn't very happy I did not want to um, do four more years of medical school and then residency and internship, I was just I was burnt out and taking some time off, um, kind of refocusing uh, try, trying to reflect on what I should do because I, I had known second grade I was going to be a doctor, so existential crisis that I had and um, I Upon reflection, I thought you know, being a doctor, I had a lot of extracurriculars. Um, being a, a, a new uh, the new member orientation or new member education leader for my uh, fraternity, uh, being an orientation leader for Missouri State University, I was a coach. I was a uh, I was giving tours. I was um volunteering my time at the local science center and it, it dawned on me everything I was doing, uh, for, for fun and extracurricularly was teaching. So I thought, you know, I enjoy this. Why not get paid to do something I enjoy? Wow. Here I am.
0: (laughs) So you've already been in. So like, this must be a, a, like a huge shock. Like everybody's expecting to go to med school and you sort of get to this I don't know, you're looking down the the barrel of at least seven more years of education uh, at that point, and you, you shift gears. Uh, I'm sort of, I'm curious both, like, what do you do mechanically to switch over to teaching and, and sort of how did people react to you making that switch?
1: You know, it, it definitely wasn't that smooth. I tried some other things as well. You know, I took a, uh, a week-long um, political science course hated it um i thought you know i thought a little bit about um something in computer science but it just wasn't social enough for me just a little bit too hyperactive just sit in one place um and so i my education advisor who is now my 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 mentor and who I go to vent about pretty much everything professionally, she just, you know, kind of steered me in the right direction. And, you know, we, we had that conversation that so many people have. You know, our profession is down upon. So if you end up with a student who um, excels academically – them to say that they're going to go into education for them to say that they're going to be a teacher it's almost always the answer is almost always well why why would you do that why 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 you could be so much more you have so much more potential and to that i argue what what better profession is there brightest why are we trying to steer our best and brightest away from education makes sense we hit so many more people as educators than, say, as a doctor or whatever the case may be. You know, coming to terms with that, this is not a step down for me, that this is more so a um, just, you know, showing, it shows it's something that allows me to be happy and still make a difference that that helped me make the transition. Mm-hmm. Um, shock to my academic advisor who tried to uh, get me to change my mind and um, when I didn't, he told me that I was the biggest waste of talent he had ever met and then proceeded to drop me as an advisee. Um, You know, my mom still makes comments uh, you know, every now and then, you know, it's not too late to go to medical school or Yeah, because she does see how how um uh, the the long hours that I keep that I'm you know I grade quite a bit that it's not a nine to five. Mm. Uh, But you know what I I'm as 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 much as I don't enjoy grading, no one really enjoys (laughs) grading. It's those interactions with the kids that makes it so much more worthwhile.
0: Yeah. I I wonder if you had and I definitely I I felt like the first few years I I was teaching, there was sort of an expectation that like, well, I'm doing this now. But what's the next thing? Um, You know, maybe for me it wasn't medical school, but I'm also curious if you felt the the push by people to maybe go into administration like, well, you're a teacher now. But like, when are you going to become a principal? Uh, I wonder if that was you got you. You faced any of that early on in your career.
1: Absolutely, and um, you know, in speaking with the veteran teachers, that was one thing that they all said to me is you know you really you you would make an excellent administrator because you have classroom knowledge you, you know you that's something that you could you could consider, and like many things, I made the decision based on everyone else and not based on you know what was best for me and so I thought, yeah, let's let's give administration a try. So I um, enrolled in a um, educational administration master's program, and I lasted half of a semester before I walked out of a uh, class. Um, my professor, my professor was discussing how to deal with um, disgruntled employees. The um, the suggestion was that. If you have a employee who is unhappy and they're they're emailing you, that sometimes the best to just ignore them and they'll go away, or to um, you know if if they're unhappy, ignore them and maybe they'll just quit. And to me, that just went so against the the kind of person that I am. It was, I just, I couldn't take any, take it anymore. I'm already not a budget, Mm -hmm. um, business, uh, pop politic kind of guy, politics kind of guy. I'm, I'm very straightforward as are most of us as people, we are very, you know, black and white, but to know that now I'm going to have to ignore people because that's what's easiest of doing what's right. I, I just, I couldn't do it and I ended up literally taking all of my stuff and walking out in the middle of class and not coming back.
0: Well, it's uh I, I would have to say that, you know, as much as I personally never want to be an administrator, um and I don't think uh a lot of the what you just said sort of echoes with me in terms of personality traits and where, you know, how good would I be in some of the situations where you know administrators have to make really good decisions um i think that's that was some pretty bad teaching um <laughs> you, there's probably there's probably better administrative training than uh <laughs> ignore your employees um I, yeah, you you would, you would think so yeah. i
1: lost a lot of respect for that program yeah. at, at that point
0: yeah i can i can see why so the big thing with you then is, you know, you're one of the the people who exemplifies to me the, the the teacher leader, like the person who's not transitioning out of the classroom, but is staying in the classroom, but still is working to lead in the profession. And one of the things I read in your introduction is that you're one of the co-founders of the Missouri Biology Teachers Association, which to me is just like a mind-blowing concept that you would have started a statewide biology teacher association. So I'm curious how, how co-founding or how how that came about. What, what was the, the process that led you to, to be involved with starting that organization?
1: Well, you know, to be perfectly honest, you know, to say that I'm a teacher leader is, I think, I, 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 I don't feel as though I'm a teacher leader. I, I feel as though I just kind of bulldoze through things and then apologize afterwards probably is not the best way to do things, but I just tend to get, you know, get stuff done that way. Um, as it pertains to, uh, Missouri Biology Teachers Association, it it was the same way. Um, I did not, um, I I really was not involved with NABT that much. And, um, our, our friend Tom, Tom Freeman, Mm -hmm. um, from California, he was at NABT in, um, I can't, maybe it was Denver or California. No, it wasn't in in Anaheim. But in any case, he was there with um, uh, Dr. Pam Close, mm-hmm. AP biology teacher at uh, Hickman High School in uh, Columbia, Missouri. And they were talking about something, you know, HHMI or AP biology or whatever, about how Missouri did not have a biology teachers, um, I'm, I'm sorry, a uh, affiliate, and so yeah, Tom asked uh, Pam if she knew me. She did not. Um, he put us in contact. She talked about how do we how do we do this? We need to get information out, and so within you know before the end of the night was made, the Twitter was made, the split bylaws and started throwing stuff together. Um, Pam used her relationship with Jackie, um, the uh, executive director uh, from that end. um, Heather Essig from St. Louis, she helped us get things organized as well. Just kind of went from there. We are still very early stages of things to, you know, establish ourselves as a affiliate chapter. You know, what is the value added joining? We don't really have any uh, membership requirements. You know, if you would like to say that you're a member, we'll make you a member. We'll invite you to, uh, we will inform you of what, all is going on, but you know as it's now we are are all very busy with um you know our our day jobs mm-hmm. so we just try to divvy up the, uh, the 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 workload amongst each other, so i you know my 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 strength is that you know i it from from a tech perspective, I can get things on the internet and build things pretty quickly. So that's just kind of what, kind of, kind of what I did.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't minimize it too much. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're giving a lot of credit to a lot of good people, but you were also a big part of that room. Um, and as you're describing it, it's not that different an organization than what I'm seeing in Massachusetts. Um, in terms of the Massachusetts Association of Biology Teachers, they have a much longer history, but it's a pretty small group. We have a an annual conference, and it's you know a few dozen teachers. And even though we've got you know have to have hundreds and hundreds of biology teachers statewide, um, it's not a it's not a huge group uh, that's involved in the statewide organization. So the fact that you guys were able to initiate and start something, and then host NABT this year is uh, is saying a lot.
1: Well, you know, luckily we, um, uh, Pam and I are also involved with Science Teachers of Missouri. And so because we are so small, we made that connection. You know, Science Teachers of Missouri is actually the N- the NSTA affiliate for Missouri. Mm-hmm. But because we didn't really have a robust NABT affiliate and Science Teachers of Missouri has um over two thousand members we were able to use the science the you know the science teachers missouri resources to help um host and it was much more successful than um if we were to try and do it alone with um the the biology teachers association
0: wow yeah that's 2000 a lot that's a it's a big that's a big group yeah but I, I say that from massachusetts which is a little tiny state so um All right, All right. <laughs> tiny but populous uh <laughs> so i i we I have a joke uh, one of the one of the biology teachers who was in was in St. Louis who was our OBTA winner this year uh from Massachusetts uh we we get there and we start talking and people are like oh do you guys teach together and, and his his standard line is no but there's only 30 biology teachers in Massachusetts based off of professional development attendance um <laughs> we're we're always in the same room uh you know such that you know it's it's not it's not a lot of uh, a, lot, a lot of diversity when you go to these uh workshops it seems like at least in in Massachusetts
1: Right, right. And that's, I mean, it's such a shame too that, you know, and I I don't know if it's a a resource problem or a lack of desire problem or whatever the problem must be, but, you know, science is, science and education are so um, uh, flexible, not flexible, so fluid. Things are always changing how are these teachers remaining successful um, without attending uh, professional development multiple times and i would argue that based upon um the uh, success rate of our students in the workforce i would i, I would argue that they are not successful i you know it, the only way that we can stand top of things is we learn more
0: and more. Yeah, it's, it, there's a lot that goes into that, though, because for me, it's, um, and I've said this a few different times, you know, we're in the middle of a profession that is undergoing a shift. Um, you know, the the model that that we went through as students, um, and the way we were taught, and now what we're experiencing as as educators, there's been such a a shift in terms of the focus and what the, the arc of the profession looked like and all of those different components. Um, you know, my high school teachers were not part of a, a deeply interconnected community, you know, working to bring in new resources. Um, they, in a lot of ways they came in and were trained and then, yeah, they worked at their, their craft, um, in the classroom. But I think that the, the rate of change was so different. Um, and both in the, the field of biology and in the field of education, uh, I think that there's a lot of people I when I talk to, they're they're coming to grips with the fact that it's not the same of what they thought it was going to be, and how long it takes for people to respond to reaching out and becoming connected is going to vary a little bit person to person.
1: Absolutely, uh, where you know, just like anything. You know how how do we fix this problem? Uh-huh. You know, I I tend to think you know very big picture, very broadly, and so you know where like you said, since we were taught this way, you know our colleagues also tend to teach this way. So if that if, if that being the case, where where does the shift have to begin? And to me, that's at the pre-service level.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, our pre-service um, our methods professors need to be that model you need, need to start that change. You know, my, again, my mentor that I just, I, I look up to more than anyone. She, uh, I worked with her on a grant to try and revamp pre-service science teaching so that, yes, there's heavy content. Um, but there is more of an internship, uh, Component to it. Uh, the example I like to give is, you know, we're we're supposed to be in an inquiry-based profession, but we all learn lecture style. So, you know, not to say that we should completely get rid of lectures, but either extreme is not really conducive, and the research backs that up. Mm. So, um, saying, the example I give is. You know, what should we do in case of a lab emergency? So let's say there's an ethanol fire. Um, I know, I know what to do. Just, I was told what to do. But the very first time there was an ethanol fire in my lab, I just stood there and stared at it for a good 30 seconds because I couldn't think of what to do. It was my second year of teaching. I was just staring at it thinking, I know I'm not supposed to pour water on this, never actually done it Mm. and so you know after about five minutes almost catching my lab on fire i finally put it out but then where is where is that practical aspect of our of our uh training where 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 is that coming from aside from
0: yeah and i also wonder sort of in in the same spirit of that that inquiry um you know, we hear about, you know, teacher turnover and um, particularly in science teaching. I wonder where the, you know, where's the wiggle room in terms of those early teachers? Uh, I think that generally speaking, when I came in, the you didn't see the the new teachers that came in did not get the reduction in courses, encouragement to observe other classes, the, like, basically the kind of start that would help set up for long-term success. Um, and I wonder, I wonder a little bit about that model of what is the expectation of a first year teacher versus a second year teacher versus a fifth year teacher. And do we set up reasonable expectations? Is it reasonable for a first year teacher to come in and have the same teaching load as a 10th year teacher? Um, and where's the balance there? And how do we how do we set people up for success the same way you ask the question? How do you set up you know a student for success or how do we change so that students are prepared for the 21st century and not the 20th century? Uh, right. I wonder a little bit as we've as this model is shifting, um, who's asking those questions about the first year teachers? Because even where I teach and I feel feel like where I teach, we do a decent job um, particularly with new teachers who come in, uh, finding that support. Um, I still feel it's a little bit wanton and the expectations of what does it mean to be 23, 24 years old in charge of classrooms for the first time. And, you know, just because people in the past have always hacked it before, are we setting people up for success as they come in? Right. Right. Yeah. So it's, um, there's a lot there's a lot to be unpacked in there, um, but I also wouldn't um, undermine yourself as you were sort of sti- sidestepping the teacher leader as you're working on improving pre-service science teaching and working as communications uh, chair for your uh, state teaching association and co-founding a biology teaching association. Uh, I think that all encompasses into the whole uh, teacher leader uh, vein, if you will. <laughs> so,
1: so. Oh, you know as the saying goes I if I um, by standing on the shoulders of giants.
0: yeah oh I yeah right.
1: without their help
0: yeah we all are yeah absolutely but I uh, you know if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck so um <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a teacher leader yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um the other reason I, I wanted to get you on, and this is this this is truth be told, it like I've been a long standing I'm like a, a CDC fanboy, uh if you will, from long standing history. Um i think that probably the first thing that ever really grabbed a hold of me um ever in terms of science uh and being interested in science was um the book and the band played on by Randy Schultz, which is all about the AIDS epidemic. Um, and the work that the epidemiologists were doing uh during the outbreak of the AIDS crisis to try to solve that mystery and and do that work on the ground um to me the the CDC epidemiologists um who were who were in that pursuit that they I don't know they they were the they were the heroes and they were the characters in that story that absolutely captivated me um early on and so i know that you recently participated in the CDC CDC's Science Ambassador Fellowship. Um, And uh, so I'd love to hear about your experience of that program and also maybe a little insight into um, the curriculum that you're building as a result of that program.
1: Absolutely. Um, I mirror your sentiments. I am also a huge, huge, I have a huge, um, for lack of a better term, crutch on the CDC. (laughs) I love what they do. Um, for me, it was the first time I, well, I, I guess before, before it was the CDC itself, I just knew that I wanted to do something in the, uh, specifically, um, uh, virology, bacteriology. Um, that was the focus of my undergraduate research. I just loved that kind of stuff. And, you know, the idea of being able to solve, puzzle of the, of the epidemic of the outbreak was just fascinating to me um, and so when I saw the CDC uh, fellowship you know it, it, it does take quite a, a time commitment but once um, I was able to make it work out I, I jumped on the chance um, again as, as you said it's well I start off um you do some uh a few online modules uh that walk you through like public health one o one you know i the fact that the c d c studies car accidents obesity um uh, <laughs> to uh you communicable diseases yeah. so they people just don't realize health is not just um uh, what do you do after you get the disease? It's, but yeah, that's why the CDC's full name is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You know, mm-hmm. public health is a lot more uh, prophylactic in that in that regard. Um, so we take these um, uh, kind of intro uh, online courses. To give us a better understanding of what public health is. And then we get to spend a week at um, the CDC headquarters in Atlanta, which, as you said, you know, you were, are just a fanboy of the CDC. I was like a kid in, the, in a candy store. As soon as um, my uh, shuttle pulled up and I saw that blue sign, I. <laughs> almost had tears in my eyes it was so excited um and of course you know it is the cdc so there's there's security security checking everything and uh, you know it, it is it's, it's the real deal you've got to have a badge you've got to be escorted if you're not an employee but we uh worked quite a bit the whole point of the program is that we have these industry professionals at the cdc You know, loads of uh, degrees, but they understand that education is an important component to uh, disease prevention and public health. And despite their um, mountain of knowledge, they may not be the best educators because that's not what they were trying to do. Hmm. So that's where we come in. So, you know, they, they help provide us with content knowledge, with content level, uh, industry level experience, while we figure out ways to present it in a way that our students, um, in addition to developing lessons and working on specific themes, um, they also reward us with... Uh, certain things so for example giving us a tour of the uh sensor museum where uh, when we were there they had an entire exhibit on the ebola
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, epidemic again my my so weird but i found it fascinating (laughs) now walking around and seeing all that was done you know not just um Medically, but um, sociologically, you know, trying to explain to patients while you're wearing a bright yellow biohazard suit, you know, what's going on, you know, how how do you handle the psychological uh, psychological effects of uh, of what they need to do. Um, We were able to put on, you know, one of my favorite things was getting to put on that biohazard suit. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't want to take it off. As soon as I put it on, I just wanted to run and take <laughs> it with me.
0: Um, you're you're well featured on their website, on the ambassador's website, with you in those suits.
1: <laughs> oh, am I?
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I had
1: no idea. Great. Okay. Um. The um. We also got to uh, tour their um, operations center. During uh, pandemics and epidemics, they will fire up the operations and They'll run everything from there, and it has where um, the, the spread of certain diseases. It's. I mean, it, it's it was such an amazing experience. So, so awesome to see what all they what all they did, but also my favorite things was to network with very unique uh, backgrounds. For example, uh, there was a group of us that we ended up eating uh, dinner together. We just came from such a diverse diverse set of backgrounds. One, public health before becoming a teacher, actually an emergency room physician. He Still practice, um, part time while teaching, part time, hmm. which I thought was fascinating. How how do you do that? One had just finished her degree in virology. What it was, it, it it was amazing to hear everyone's perspectives and um, you know, listen to how they were going to incorporate the the uh, the knowledge into their into their classes, whether it be putting them into an existing class or creating a brand new class, like an elective work thing. Um, from my point of view, I was very interested in using the information, using the knowledge to provide relevance to my students. So you know, we earlier talked about inquiry and. Or relevant to students when students do science, like if they're going to do research, um, they don't. You don't do research by having someone talk at you. You know, you do the experiment. You need to know how to run a controlled experiment with um, hypotheses and whatnot. But then twenty percent. How many? How many of our kids are actually going to go into science
0: mm.
1: research? So more so, it was from how do I present knowledge? To kids who, quite frankly, aren't interested in science at all, but still affect them. That, that became kind of my focus. For example. Um, I just recently taught a uh, my general biology class who in our um, unit on system cell respiration. One of the most boring units for a non-science person, you know why? Why do I have to learn this over and over again? What? What? Why do I need to know what glycolysis is? Um, but you know, based on my experience with um, the CDC and the Science Ambassador Fellowship, I was able to incorporate one of the lessons that I helped um, uh, design, which was on the obesity epidemic.
0: Hmm.
1: And so it became, instead of, let's memorize the steps of cellular respiration and what ATP is and whatnot, it became... You know, when you lose weight, where does it go? Mm. And of course, you know my kids thought, "Well, you you poop it out." <laughs> okay, so you're telling me you poop out 15 pounds when you lose 15 pounds, uh, or you know, it, when a, when a wrestler is cutting weight, you're telling me that when they cut 15 pounds in three days, that they literally poop out 15 pounds in three days. What's wait, what what's going on? And I use. To, to, deliver my cellular respiration um, content. And so it made it much more relevant to them in terms of, you know, losing weight, uh, staying healthy. You know, this is how you um, make sure that you don't gain more weight and how you lose weight How Something that will actually apply to them as opposed to, you know, the arbitrary numbers of ATP that are made in each uh, uh, each step of cell respiration
0: Wow. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty excited about uh, reading and looking at the, the various uh, products that come out of that fellowship in there um, as you guys look forward. So are you getting mm-hmm. support throughout the year, like as you're writing curriculum? Do you, are there contact people for you to reach out to, um, to ask uh, questions and, and do that sort of thing?
1: Absolutely. In, in addition to um, my fellow, uh, my fellow fellows, <laughs> uh, the CDC um, program, uh, the Science Ambassador Fellowship Program managers, like Kelly Cordera and Andrew Fisher, uh, they are with us. You know, helping us with what we need. Um, they've discussed that this year. Um, in addition to the uh, the main science ambassador fellowship, uh, they discussed ha- holding regional uh, workshops for mm-hmm. people who can't, you know, trek to Atlanta for a week in the summer. You know, let's let's do a two day or a three day um, fellowship throughout the school year. And maybe we'll hit more people that way, and it could be run by fellows. Mm. And so that is another uh, part of the evolving nature of the fellowship.
0: Neat, neat. I think I'll, I'll put in the. I, I put in the show notes. I'll put in the link to that. I'm a. Uh, as you said, you have to clear the decks and you have to clear the time to go there. Um, and I think the deadline this year is January fifteenth um, to apply again for this year. Not sure if I'm going to be able to block out that week in July this year, but one of these years uh one of these years i'm gonna i'm gonna follow through and dive into that ambassadorship
1: <laughs> absolutely
0: all right, so we've talked a little bit about your uh your teacher leader role your professional development role let's uh let's talk about classroom what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the next few years
1: you know as i said um earlier i I'm trying to look at, provide more and more relevance to students so that it's not a, um, it, it's not, we're, we're not, we're getting less and less of the why do I need to know this? Why do I need to know this? You know, I was, I was part of a gift program growing up, and one of my, one of the veins of my existence was when, Teachers would tell me, well, you know, you just got to do it because sometimes in life you got to do stuff you don't want to do. <laughs> Such a terrible reason to do anything. You know, yes, I don't want to pay bills, but there's a direct reason why I pay my electric bills because I actually need electricity. Mm. But for example, if I don't need to do a worksheet to get an A on an exam, why am I doing the worksheet? or if I you know my kids if I'm assigning a kid a, a, a word search, what what's the point? If, if they don't need it to, to be successful So looking at, you know looking forward into the future for my classroom, I'm trying to think of ways to deliver content you know the CDC fellowship is one way um, but, Prior to coming to Galena, I was part of a program called GoCap. GoCap stands for the Greater Ozark uh, Centers for Advanced Professional Studies. The um, the and it it goes into uh, what I was what I wrote at the bottom about my my take of the week. We're seeing that employers are less and less saying that our students in the workforce have issues with knowledge. It's more so that our students, the students entering the workforce um, have lost their soft skills. Um, and so go caps. One of the uh, goals was to help students, you know, Get those soft skills back and immerse them in industry and learn that way. It's almost like a vote type, but it's, it's not in that. Like a vote type is more like teaching you a trade or a skill, whereas GoCats is more career exploration while doing um, soft skill training at the same time. So, for example,
0: you know, we had a very
1: specific dress code. You know, as it sounds, kids don't know how to dress anymore. If you tell a kid to dress in business casual, they don't know what that means. So you you see it like during interviews, a a kid will show up to an interview in jeans, in which are you know you know if you're are, if you're interviewing for a warehouse position at Harley Davidson. Okay, maybe,
0: Mm
1: but if you're interviewing for a lab assistantship or a, you know, you should probably put on some flack. Kids don't know how to shake hands. Don't know how to look prospective employers in the eye. Quite frankly, they don't ever had to send mail. Um, In GoCap, we had we had to literally teach students where to write an address. On an envelope and where to put the stamp. I'll write letters more. So, my point of view, I I'm I'm looking forward to using my classroom and my my science courses as a way to be both from a constant perspective and from a um, professional perspective. So I want them to learn how to speak in front of people. I want them to learn how to collaborate. And I don't mean a group project where quote-unquote kid does all the work. I want, <laughs> I want to teach them how to do true collaboration because I guarantee no one's ever actually taught them. Additionally, I'm trying to be that innovator in the classroom is is pushing the boundaries uh, of the way content is delivered because you know, like again, as you said, very much talk and talk, and so that's why a lot of our colleagues teach the same way instead of being more hands-on, being more innovative. Very much a um, Paul Strode <laughs> disciple in terms of grading, started piloting the gradeless year in my AP biology class. So now instead of assigning points to assignments and, and be extrinsically motivated that way, I don't really, I, nothing is assigned a uh, a point value necessarily. Students more so are trying to show growth. Mm. And so let's say they take a, take a an exam at the beginning of the year in your traditional classroom if they do poorly they spend the rest of the semester trying to salvage their grade but in no way is that transferable to industry you're it within your first six months no one expects you to be scoring 90 to 100 percent on things you're just learning how to do stuff more so we should be teaching these students to learn from their mistakes and not be afraid to make mistakes. So at the end of the year, or I'm sorry, at the end of the semester, my students take their body of work and they use it to show growth. You know, this is how I started off the year. You can see that I was not doing so hot on these uh, particular topics, but as the semester go on, went on, I Slowly, my, my understanding of these topics grew and grew and grew. Um, you know, even if I grade an assignment, nothing goes in the gradebook. It's more sort of more so shows that there is improvement um, in terms of their uh, proficiency of the subject, and so that ends up being much more transferable to the real world as well as argumentation. And argue, arguing um, based on evidence, because in this world of again alternative facts <laughs> and fake news, we don't know how to argue. <laughs> yeah, using our resources. So, our kid, my kids, who are used to it with no effort, they now have to defend to me. Why, they, if they think they deserve an A, why do I? Why do you deserve an A? And when they say, you know, well, I got this. I'm going to oppress them and make them um, defend their argument without becoming emotional, which is, again, much more transferable to the real world, regardless of what uh, they end up doing as a career. So tweaking that experiment of mine, that's something I'm also looking forward to and trying to initiate that culture.
0: Wow, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more about that as you, as you uh, experiment with it. Because I'm hearing a variety of different people, and I, I keep turning over in my head what what will standards based grading or, you know, throwing out grades or however you want to phrase it, what does that look like in the culture of my school and my classroom? And um, the the couple things that I've I've taken away from it are it's a direction I definitely want to go, but I I think I need to do a little bit more. Background work on making sure that m- I'm clear on my end, you know, what are the standards, um, which is something that I think that that's the, been the big flaw with me making the dive into that is all right, well, I got to make a clearer argument of making the transparency of my standards uh, clearer to the students before I ask them to assess whether or not they're meeting those standards. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to hear more about that as you. As you play around, I think AP is a great place to try around, try that experiment.
1: Absolutely, because we, we already have the learning objectives and mm-hmm. the uh, enduring understandings and knowledge
0: mm-hmm.
1: lined up for us. So you know we we can just take that and say, yeah, these, these are the standards. Yeah, this is what I'm trying to get you to understand. And frankly, that in in doing so, that has made me a better AP teacher showed me where my deficiencies lie um, in terms of what I was getting to teach or what I was not doing a good enough topic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, (laughs) as I started lining up my standards and with our standards, I, I think that for my, the way we've traditionally taught and again, very traditional classroom was the way I was presenting that to my students, something that they would be able to understand and make those arguments back. And, you know as i've worked on this the last year and a half and tried to make the standards there i think that they're a lot closer but um my hope is that within the next year i can get them to a point where i i don't feel like it's an unfair ask for them to defend their grades uh, i think coming into this year it still was there still was a gap between sure. between that language so uh, i'm excited to hear how other people are are working that way All right, Uh, so aside from when you're teaching, uh, what do you like to do? What do you do when you're not in the classroom, not teaching, not leading other teachers? (laughs) What fills your time?
1: Um, Well, I am also actually a uh, national-level volleyball official. Nice. So I travel pretty much every weekend officiating volleyball um, in the spring um, all all around um. In the in the fall, I have my collegiate season, so that's when I, you know, officiate. Uh, you know, the various colleges. I try to stay close, um, just because I have a, yeah, a relatively young family. My daughter is only six, so I don't want to be in the car for six, eight, ten hours, missing her grow up. Um, but I I do officiate uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, probably in the the spring, I'll be officiating three or four weekends, three or four weekends every month. Um, well, one unique thing that I have kind of fallen into with the volleyball officiating is, um, as, as is the case with all, um, sports officiating there are increasing numbers people don't want to become sports <laughs> officials and why would they because they're getting screamed at all the time and they get very little um recognition now it pays very well but for a lot of people and especially for volleyball I the hardest thing i do is climb up the stand i don't have to run i don't have to do anything but lift my arms a whole bunch um They, why aren't people becoming officials? And it's that there isn't enough recognition, and is not where it needs to be. And that's kind of caught my eyes. So I look at the way that officials are being trained, and I realize, you know, this is not this is not how um, education. But, you know, I, I am. I am of an education background. This is how you teach people to do things. Because right now, we're just kind of having people sit through a clinic, and then we throw them on a court and make we say good luck. I <laughs> Again, that's not industry. Um. Industry relevant. We would in no job would we ever do that to someone. That's not how we. That's not even how we teach kids. Mm-hmm. So. You know, my new kind of thing is, you know, revamping the way my, um, re- revamping the way we train volleyball officials so that they are, so that we have more and that they are um, more successful. Um, uh, you know, not because I just have all this spare time on my hands. Currently. <laughs> I'm also on the board of directors. For my volleyball region, and so I use that position to, or I have been using that position to try and um, experiment with how we train officials, see if you know if it's successful and then tweaking as as we go along. Yeah, the unfortunate fact of the matter is I'm I'm 36, and I'm by far the youngest national level official in my region. Uh, most of the next level officials are in their fifties. So if uh, we don't start training some young officials, then it's going to be me by my, myself, officiating yes. all the masses. So hopefully I can, I can do the experiment and I can help use my education background to solve this problem.
0: Wow. Well wow. you're not staying uh not sitting down relaxing too much it sounds like
1: <laughs> and it, it would be nice that 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 is definitely a um, uh something that I, I need to work on i you know I, I I really do wish that I could spend more time with my family uh spend more time with my daughter you know right i as much as i can I'll try and um visit her class. For them and try and get them excited with science. In fact, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the whoosh bottle demonstration in chemistry, where you oh, ignite, yeah, um, yeah uh, isopropyl vapor. I did that in her class and made about half of them cry. the Day before break, well <laughs> um, you know we did experiments with dry ice. Yeah, the, the, you know, try and I have to, that, that also, well, well I'm to some of my daughter. You know, that hopefully we can, uh, or hopefully I can spend more time doing that um, as well, especially, you know, because my daughter isn't going to want to be with me once she gets Yeah,
0: it goes by fast. Yeah. Uh, picks the episode do you have any questions for me
1: so the, the two that I wrote on the talk um, was you know this is you know, the podcast is excellent and I have such a admiration for science communicators and it seems like you know science is under attack this year uh, more so than ever you know have, have you ever uh, considered doing that
0: you know, I, I was, yeah. I, you know, I know, honestly, like the science communication uh, thing has been sort of a side note. Um, like, it's not, it wasn't the intent that I would gotten into this for, but it is something that I, I think a little bit more about. Um, I've had a couple of colleagues who, who listen to the show who are like, you've got to connect with um, you know, pre-service teacher programs and, and have them listen to this. And it's like, I, I don't know how that works, like how that goes, but, um, it does make me wonder, um, about how to do some science communication, um, you know, pieces and how this might fit into a larger science communication, I don't know, venture, if you will. Um, uh, I I wonder if I've like inadvertently been training myself as a science communicator over the last year and a half as I've been doing this. Um, it's not something that I have been actively seeking, but it's not you're not the first person who's mentioned anything about it. And I'd say I'm more open to the idea now. Um, I don't know how that how that door gets opened uh, based off of uh, the, you know, dozens of people who listen to this.
1: Well, along those lines, I, in, in the document, the second bullet, where I included a link to the Department of Ed School Ambassador Fellowship, and that's a, um, a program where, you know, you can, uh, makers, lawmakers, you know, and bring in your ed experience to help shape that ed policy. And that, you know, that could almost be that step into the realm of, you know, how, how do you, like for me, do I have to be a effective science communicator? Because I would just say exactly what I was thinking all the time. And so, you know, is there is that a program that you could use to um, help you venture into that realm?
0: Yeah, and before you'd put it in the doc, I had never seen this program before. So um, I will, uh, I will definitely read through this a little bit. I'll also include it into the uh, into the show notes for for other people, um, you know, to to find out what does it mean to be a uh, just make sure I read the whole thing. School ambassador fellowship member, you know, what is involved with that? Um, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Um, that's in there i said i uh i am shocked that anyone ever even listens to these episodes um <laughs> aside, aside from the person who I'm interviewing and myself but uh yeah it it's definitely you know and i listen to I, I listen to a ton of podcasts and and this idea of role of communicating science and I think that even beyond that this has turned into not just science but also education communication um I think that so many people have in their minds, if they're not in science, they have a, a view of what science is that fits into that realm, that it's a book of facts. Um, and what education is, is their school experience. And both of those things are inadequate descriptions of what science or education are. Um, and I definitely am preaching to the choir. I think the people who listen to this are people who are working hard in their own classroom and are thinking about things as it applies to their local school or their local classroom. And it's sort of helping to be a sounding board for them. Um, But how do we communicate outside that bubble to people beyond um, is an interesting question. And I don't, I don't know what that is or how that works. Um, And it's something that I've started to think about. um, But uh, I'll continue to think about that as, as I move forward. Awesome. All right. So it's time to get to picks the episode. You alluded to yours a little bit. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your article that made you think about the, the factors of uh, successful employees, Ryan?
1: Um, so that um, I alluded to it earlier. I, I love science. I am such a science junkie and it it doesn't matter the science I, I just love the, that study of why things happen the way they happen but I also understand that not everyone loves science so when I get a student that doesn't love science the way I do how do I connect with them you know I'm, I'm not going to if they don't love science, I'm definitely not going to get them to love science by trying to push it on them. So, with the understanding that how I, um, how how I present my class may be a indicator of my relation—I'm not an indicator—but may um, they move forward in my class? I feel like I need to focus not just on the content, but on other things. So when you look at well, you know, the point of high school, why why do we want kids to graduate high school? Why do we want kids to graduate college? And arguably it is so that they can be successful, productive members of society. And so the, the article that I picked on a study done by Google and it uh lends itself to the uh philosophy that go caps followed or still follows what are employers looking for in prospective employees and you know surprisingly when google did this study they um found that that stem skills stem skills were not even the top piece of of uh, characteristics that make for a successful Google employee. The top seven were all um, soft skills, such as teamwork and um, yeah, showing up on time, things things of that nature, things that, quite frankly, have been fully eliminated from the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how, how is it that we can incorporate this back into... Uh, the education system, so that we are actually preparing students to be successful um, it, in in the workforce. You know, I, in GoCap, I heard some stories that I just could not believe, but they, you know, they the people I talked to swear swear by them. Um, my program was through two of the. Uh, two of our large hospitals in town. It is uh, Mercy, Mercox Health. And I got to work quite a bit with their HR departments and their recruitment and retention departments. And some of the stories I heard, you know, like um, the uh, the assistant director for recruitment and retention told me a story about a um, a uh, position for a job and be okay if his mother sat in on the interview and it's what you're, you're going to operate on patients possibly and you want your mom to sit in on the interview where where are we teaching kids to be successful um from a soft skills perspective are we are we um expecting the business teachers to do all that because the only business class that's required in Missouri at least is personal finance. There there is no um you know how to get a top class. So if we the more we can incorporate this into our curriculum or our curriculum, regardless of the content, the better we are leaving our students. So that's kind of what my article.
0: Yeah. And I I wonder how many of those soft skills are hard to hard to assess on a standardized test, Um, (laughs) which uh, has made them in this this era of standardized testing sort of dropped off the radar. And, you know, one of those unintentional consequences of the the test focus that has really driven, you know, uh, you know, I know that Massachusetts has been very test driven for the last 15, 16 years working on getting those state tests for high school graduation. Um, but a lot of those soft skills are not things you can test on a end of the year uh, standardized test. And so, um, you know, it's, it's developed a hole in our curriculum and we need to start to address some of those things. Sure. Yeah. So interesting. Definite food for thought. Um well my uh, my pick of the episode is um and i actually almost put this on my previous episode because uh, it had it had happened right uh before that that had happened uh but uh Larry Flammer, who was the founder of the evolution and nature of science institute or n c uh website uh he passed away in in the middle of december um and i got to know larry uh as he was a mentor in the online mentoring program that i worked in um back in that I think we first met in like 2005, 2006, sometime around then, uh, working on this small online mentoring program. Um, and I got to know Larry through that work and his posts in our uh, communal boards for mentors and for new teachers. Um, and then he's just been a staple on a lot of the listservs, uh, most, most notably the NSTA listserv over the past. Uh, decade. And uh, I've used a lot of his his resources and the resources he collated through NC. Um, So he was a a great guy. And when you talk about science communication, that's come up several times throughout this episode. Uh, Larry is a a great example of a a phenomenal science communicator, somebody who put together these amazing resources for um, teachers uh, and had a real commitment to mentoring and working with Uh, younger teachers. And most of the work that I knew him from is when he retired, um, and how he continued to stay engaged with teaching and learning, um, and supporting new teachers and supporting active teachers in the classroom after he left the classroom. So, uh, while he passed away, um, you know, his legacy is going to continue through his work. And I know that I'll continue to use his, uh, many of his resources for years to come. So definitely want to acknowledge Larry because, uh, he had a huge impact on, on my thinking, um, particularly around some of the ideas of nature of science and evolution. He's probably the first person who put the idea of the nature of science as being a really core, important thing into my teaching um, early on in my teaching. So I definitely wanted to honor him. Yeah, you. absolutely. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you've ever used any NC website stuff, but if not, you should definitely check it out.
1: That's absolutely what I was going to say. I've never actually met, uh, I, I never actually had met Larry, but... Website. I that has roved me as a first year teacher and as a student teacher. What helped um, shape my entire education philosophy. So hearing about his passing was definitely it was a
0: very somber
1: moment. You know, without without him, can be. Where were so many of us even be?
0: Yeah. All right, well, uh, Ryan, thank you again for joining me um, it's in your busy schedule over our, our our little winter break here. This will be my first episode of 2018, um, so you're gonna kick off the year on the right foot. And so, let me go through my show credits. Uh, you can support this if you go to patreon.com/slash patrons are invited into a uh people who support. So. And David Knufke, we all get together and we meet in a Slack community uh, for our Patreons. Uh, music on this episode and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and ex magicians. Uh, you can get show notes at lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can also follow uh, Ryan at uh, No Scals. Did I say it right? No Scals?
1: Yeah, it's it's essentially my last name backwards for the the
0: end. Yeah, I figured that out. It was actually like the third or fourth time I put it in. I was like, what is this? He has last name with an S on the end. Uh, last name backwards with an S on the end. Uh, if you want to follow Ryan. Uh, so thanks everyone for listening and I'll talk to everybody soon.